Hello and welcome to this week's live episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my fragrant co-host, Teo Sabadee. I can smell you now, so that's... Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. You, you smell nice. This is what being live is like. Exactly. It's, it's fragrant and you, you can't say, let's retake that. No, no. Uh, yeah, I, um, I did shower, so that... No, I mean, plus. it's flowery, flowery even. Wow. Well, yeah. uh, I shampooed. That's good. It's early in the con, so yeah. by, by Sunday afternoon, <laughs> it will also be fragrant, but in a different yeah, this way. This is the shower and the shampoo for the con. Okay, gotcha. And uh, thank you all in the audience for, for coming. Um, as we go through our normal uh, podcast ritual here of you know, taking uh, questions from the tweet bag and talking about the news and then talking about a topic, if you have anything to add, Please just raise your hand, shout out, run in circles. Non-insulting things, Dad. Not insulting things. Thank you. Uh, but I, we might ask you to come up and speak into the mic so that the listeners who are hearing this as a podcast will know what, what you've said and, and who you are. So with that, uh, let's get into our tweet bag. We first want to say, does anyone have any questions um, that you may not have been able to ask on Twitter or other social media that you want us to talk about? And if not, that's okay, because we have other stuff. Okay, so the question that came up on Twitter that I was very intrigued by was metagaming. I don't know if you saw this question come up, and it, it got quite a bit of discussion. Um, so metagaming, what is it, and is it really bad? And I want to hear your opinion on this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so the tweet in question was something along... What was, do you remember what the exact topic was? It was basically metagaming is bad. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that came up was things like hit points, right? This is one, one of my one examples I like, which is like when somebody says, how many hit points do you have left? Right? So we're bringing the whole mechanical angle versus the in-character fiction. But so in theory, what metagaming is, is the idea that you are thinking beyond the moment of where you are, and you are analyzing the construct of the game itself, the mechanical nature of it, and therefore making a decision that is usually optimal so that you can game the game. And we are gamers, so we think that way, so it's very easy for us to want to meta game, and at some point we're always kind of doing it, right? Yeah, and and it's funny because if you think about other sports, other games, no one complains about metagaming in football, right? There's the big controversy in football now about when do you go for it on fourth down, and they go to the analytics to say, well, if, if it's fourth and one at the 50, you should go for it 70% of the time. You, your percentage chance goes up 3% if you go for it rather than punt. Right. And Deliberately missing a free throw at the end of a basketball game. Right. 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 All, of the, all of that is metagaming, but we don't complain about it in those – well, some people do. But for the most part, it's just accepted as part of the thing. But in metagaming – uh, but in, in role-playing games, metagaming is seen as bad, or at least has been for a long time. But it's a game. How do you not metagame a game? Um, and so my question is, is, is this another example of role-playing games being a storytelling vehicle with a game problem or <laughs> a, a game with a storytelling problem? Because it, it's both things. One thing, we see it as bad because you're manipulating what we see as an organic story. Your character would never do that, but it's but you know it's doing that because it knows this other thing. Versus you're trying to be successful in the game, so why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think there are two levels too. Like there's there's that level of metagaming which came up in this Twitter thread, which was the idea of I kind of want this information that I should know. I think it was who's proficient in a skill. I said I think that's what it was. Right. And, you know, if you're a team that's been working together, trying to survive through the Underdark or wherever, like, I think you know which person has medicine. You know, like, you do. And so asking who's trained in medicine, I, I don't know that that's really metagaming. That's sort of trying to come up with the gap between player and, and game. Mm-hmm. Then there's metagame where it's really like, well, that monster can only be so hard. Right. right. So, therefore, I can do this. Right. Or we know that this DM would never give us a hard encounter <laughs> right. when there's two hours left in our session because the hard encounter comes at the end. So we cannot use all our resources on this one. We right. can wait. Yeah. And Some of that is destructive to play, right? Like sometimes when people do that, it is sort of problematic because it breaks down that fiction, right? You know? Right. But then again, as a game master, if you catch your players doing that, you can turn it on its head. And when I was writing for Living Greyhawk, it turned into that metagame, right? Yeah. It was thug encounter, 
medium encounter, hard encounter, and so they players knew exactly when to use their their daily powers or you know, their big spells. And so I would always put the hardest encounter first. Players would be sweating, thinking, oh, "If this was the easy encounter, what are we <laughs> yeah, up against?" Yeah. Yeah. And they they would feel tension there. They would use a few of their resources and then worry. And then toward yeah. the end, it, it got a little easier. But that sort of dread that they felt, I think, was it was fun for me. Yeah, I yeah, hope it was fun true. for them. Yeah, that's no, true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any other th- any thoughts on uh, on there about metagaming and what it means to you as a player, as a as a DM, or or how acceptable the different levels of it are. Well, I think it comes down to better game is only as bad as you make it. Okay. Meaning there's a whole spectrum of styles of play and some people will be heavily mechanical and want the metagame and that's totally fine. And then others who can and are fully able to say, look, you're not allowed to share your hit points. You're not allowed to mm-hmm. share you can go to that side of the spectrum as well. So it's only a problem if it's a problem for you and your group. Yeah. That's a good point. It's not a problem right. as a whole. I had a, speaking of living Grey, Greyhawk, there was a guy in our region who loved D&D, I'd say, more than anybody else. Like, he just, the level of pleasure he derived from the game was amazing, but it was not basically anybody else's pleasure. And this included things like coming up to a table and saying, did you come to the part with the mind flare yet? And you're like, ah, dude, you know, like, really? And, and he would do that endlessly. Yeah. But he loved the game, right? It's not like he was trying to be terrible. Like, this was his brand of super fun, right? Mm-hmm. He also liked making a DM cry, right? Like, this was, he was a very special individual. And he, uh, he yeah, he would just, this was his pleasure. And you're right, you have to establish the rules for your group. And right, yeah, I mean, what, what Tom said uh, transverses all of that in terms of getting the group together that all has the same ethos for what they want out of a game is, is important, whether it be, you know, metagaming or what type of game they like if you have disparate players it becomes very hard to make everyone happy so yeah. such uh, as at a convention, as at a convention. <laughs> uh for how many people out there dm or have dm'd regularly uh how do you handle hit points with with players asking each other what are you at uh do you just let them talk do you have a code for it yeah, how many people like show of hands how many people don't want to have anybody discuss their hit point numbers no one raised their hand, yeah. and almost everyone raised their hand for DMs. So obviously it is not. <laughs> oh, sorry, Jeff. I, I think it's just a different way of saying how hurt are you, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Die, you know yeah. Right. It's just a way of phrasing that, yeah. a different way of phrasing that. Someone on Twitter said they, have, they do it this way. On a scale of 0 to 37, <laughs> are you at 12? <laughs> right. you know, it's, they just said it, but they had a clever way. Sean's playing a, a fighter character and, and he's gushing blood from you know everything. Then my cleric knows. Well, he's probably down to about three hit points. Right. Let me see. Hey, are you a bad <laughs> look? You know that sort of thing. Generally. And so yeah. yeah. And so the idea is that that we're we're, we're not allowing ourselves if, if I, by these restrictions, in my opinion, we're not allowing ourselves to incorporate a real real world question analog. Right. Characters in the right. Well, at my table, what we do is we everybody gets a bottle of ketchup, and you just pour the amount <laughs> relative to how hurt you are on yourself, so that visually you can act out. Uh, I, I'm going to uh, take. I'm going to use that only. Somebody's going to leave this and try that. Right. Like going to come and drop claws on your table. That's good. Joe. Aside from not now wanting to play in one of chaos's games. Yeah. The health of whatever you're, you're fighting is um, just as a way to entice the players of how to use their, their game. Yeah, Bloody was great. I mean, it yeah. really it did so many things. It was such a good signifier. It was almost like a fair. Like, it's really fair to say that you're half, right? Like, there's no controversy there, and everybody can sort of agree on it for this edition. 
And then it could also be a lever. The monsters know. Yeah. Right. Which was understood through various monster powers that could activate off of it. Right. Like, okay, that's that's neat. Right. That's it's neat. The, the game changed yeah. when something you or the monster became bloodied. Yeah. And that was a fun twist. So I want to do one more question on the metagaming. And that's the your character would not do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Your character would never agree to work with their horribly hated foe. But since it works out for you, you know, since you're going to get a long rest because you do, you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how how do we feel about that? And by we, I mean you. Gosh, I, this is one where I think it really varies with the group. Yeah. Like at least for me personally, I'll play to the group and what the the group kind of convention is. Yeah. If if it's people I know, I will shame them horribly. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Well, you know my group, so yeah. we shame each other horribly anyway. But. But if it's at, like if I if it's with strangers, I I just you know, step back and say okay, you know, yeah. your your character that's fine. It's a little bit like the improv yes and like like you don't want to demolish a game session or you know, tear like tear it apart, disrupt it, yeah. hurt its progress over what your character would do. But hopefully you can I, I would try to add to it in some way, you know, mm-hmm. add a spin on it or something like that. So yeah. generally it's not a big problem for me. I'll just work around it in my way. And there are times when you just, you know, there's six people at the table or however many. Like, it's okay if in my head I know it might have panned out a little differently. We don't need a... It's like a scene you'd cut from a movie, right? This right. Is me telling you what I think about what we're doing. Maybe it should just be cut from the game, you know? Yeah. Any any thoughts from folks out there? Yeah. Um, well, a lot of times it's a good opportunity to uh, introduce kind of, uh, in effect, based off that. Like, oh, I don't believe that that's something that your character would do. And so maybe... Nice. Or uh, in the case of like clerics or something, oh, maybe you're not getting all your stuff back mm-hmm. because like, yeah. hey, you're on the naughty list now. Yep. Uh, and you may need to do something to push yourself back where you belong. Right. All of those life clerics casting Toll the Dead. Yeah. 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 But that's a good point. So, that, yeah, you kind of veer off into things and be like, hey, maybe prod them back to the correct path or <laughs> let them go further astray. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought about like losing spell slots. You know, like that really takes you back to to the old D and D games. What things were were sort of very pillared and very iconic, and so it's sort of very easy for a DM to say, "You have gone outside the box. Something must happen." Right. But now the box is so absurd. Right. You can be a cleric that when you read the description, it sounds like a warlock. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, what's outside the box? Right. All boxes are available. So then, you you know, you're really like yeah. And in that way. when there were rules for the fallen paladin, right, uh, right in the right in the core book, yeah. But that is a good point too. Also, that that when a player does this sort of like your character wouldn't do this moment, it is a good to kind of circle back with them as DM, sort of, hey, where is that coming from? Do you want to play off of that? Like, are you going along with somebody, but there's an in character reason that we're going that we want to maybe bring out later? Yeah, It'll give you a different avenue to express what you would have liked to have done. Awesome. Good stuff. All right, let's get into our news. Uh, first bit of news is Wes Snyder of Wizards of the Coast has revealed Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen in a YouTube video. Uh, what did you think of the video? What was in it? Uh, it was a pretty, pretty interesting video providing an overview, but by virtue of doing so, telling us things that filled in the holes, the gaps of knowledge of what we'd already been told. So we know it's coming out December 6th. We know it's 224 pages. It's an adventure, but also setting. And then it told us the location of the adventure, because we'd been told it was somewhere sort of adjacent to what the War of Lance novels and adventures deal. And it is, in fact, the eastern fringes of the land of Salamnia, famous for the Knights of Salamnia, mm-hmm. uh, and the Salami that they uh, make. The D&D Salami, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they said that this is a place mentioned by the other expressions, I liked that term, yeah. other expressions, of Dragonlance but not explore it in detail. So the idea is the characters get their own story. They get to sort of establish their feeling that the, the War of the Lance is theirs in this respect, even though those other things are not not happening. Right. But you're doing with what you're you know, focused on. Which is a big sigh of relief after the last time they put out Dragonlance Adventures, which was, oh, did you read the novel? Well, you can play the exact same story with your characters that you already know. 
yeah, which, right. which was a little awkward. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things when we covered that adventure, there were things I really liked about the intro Dragonlance AD&D adventure, and then other things that just were like, wow, you're just making me, you know, you're forcing the Gold Moon character to show up now, and things like that. Yeah, yeah I, I love it when the designers talk about the thing that they're working on, because while it is a marketing piece, obviously, mm-hmm you learn a lot about the thought process that's behind it. And when you know the thought process behind it and what they're trying to do, then you can actually make you know, good judgments on, do I want this? And how well did they pull off what they were trying to do? Yeah. Um, so, so I thought it was, I was glad to hear from Wes on that. Uh, yeah, they have a whole emphasis on war, which you know, makes sense. Anyone knows the story, but you know, sometimes you get these, uh, a new version and you're like, wow, you missed what this was about. Mm-hmm. Right. And at least from what we're hearing, what I liked was it sounded like this idea of, you know, war being slowly revealed, threats being slowly revealed, war coming to to a place that doesn't expect it, and you playing the central role. All of that is is key to this story that we're going to get. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because even though D&D came from a war game, through the additions, it's never really done war well in terms of a big battle system. There have been many attempts yeah. but none have ever caught on um so it'll be interesting to see how they incorporate that theme of war into you know what is an adventure for six characters and if the games that they come out with that are supposed to be based on Dragonlance right. are compatible with what the what adventure what the adventure does yeah and for folks who don't know there's also a board game coming out and the idea is you can use this board game to simulate the war parts or to, to handle the war parts of the adventure so you can be running the adventure with the hardback and then you also buy the board game very clever and now we use that for our war scene and then you know does that feel great and who knows because it's an entirely different team creating both right and they're all talented people but does it work well together it's it's a tall order for sure yeah definitely so what else do we learn about the campaign that the characters will will be will be playing i mean i think all, all the right Checkboxes are here, right? They're going to be draconians making it unique. Um, there's going to be the slow reveal of who the big bad is. Um, dragons and deities don't exist until this war comes, right? All those kind of things that, you, that are classic Dragonlance concepts are there. Uh, Wes did say something like, you know, but if you want to play a cleric, you, know, you still can. And it didn't really say whether that was how that exactly was handled other than there was this really interesting piece where it said that... Um, there will be a part of the adventure that's sort of an intro, and it sounded like it was just for each character mm. to sort of join the story. Um, and and you will kind of get introduced to... The, you have a, an introductory scenario prior to the adventure start where you can get caught up on these aspects through play. That's what was said. Yeah. And I loved his, I loved his description of that. You know, instead of having a four-hour lecture on what has happened in Dragonlance... We're going to give you an intro scenario that does all of that while the characters can play it. And that's so important uh, to, to this specific story, but to D&D in general, mm-hmm. not to have to sit down and tell a new player all of the rules before they can actually roll a die and, and be that character. I'm excited to see what happens as the story progresses, because especially for like the wizards in the novels, right? there are these moments of big choices and big important things. Will there be anything like that? characters right that's an interesting question of how how do you capture the fact that like being a knight of salamnia being a, a member of one of the wizard towers you're not that isn't done at at, at level one mm. that theoretically is an important story progressing throughout your Dragonlance mm. feeling so how does that yeah. but in the playtest packet didn't you get a feat that made you a knight of Salamnia, or am I thinking of the wrong thing? No, I think you're right. And do you have to pick that at first level? Ah, I, I dropped one. One was a background feat. Okay, yep. That unlocked later feat choices. So then you could choose one or more areas of like the knights, and I think you just chose one wizard thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sounds sounds good to me. I, I believe you. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the end, will we take it because we get proficiency and blah blah blah, which is totally broken. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right, uh, so we have learned that Ray Winninger has left Wizards of the Coast and D&D. Uh, we, we speculated on this because his Twitter, his Twitter bio no longer said Wizards of the Coast or D&D, uh, and we learned that a new 
senior vice president of D&D had been announced. Uh, so Ray did confirm this with a tweet saying, sorry for the radio silence. I'm in the midst of a sorely needed long rest, capital L, capital R. Uh, I have indeed left Wizards of the Coast, having accomplished the ambitious goal we set out uh, when I took over the D&D team. Shepherding D&D was an honor and a privilege. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask, was that quote given on an aircraft carrier? <laughs> I believe so. Mission accomplished. Uh, I'm looking forward to slowing down and cut, uh, getting back to a list of personal design projects. Gamers, you have not seen the last of me, which sounds ominous. Most of all, I look forward to following D&D as a fan again. So, Yeah, and then he thanked a bunch of <clears throat> team members. Oh, yeah. Oh, hello. Um, and... Uh, and that was uh, all very nice. But, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the confirmation of what you're thinking, right, which is the, the, the leadership and the interface between the design team and marketing team and your executives, right, that has changed. So yeah, what will that mean? And it's changed from someone who came up as a game designer and became an executive. Yeah. Not even He was an executive outside of Wizards of the Coast mm-hmm. in other businesses, to someone who is coming in as what was it, Amazon and Microsoft, right? Uh, digital, yeah. synergistical M- MBA speak, right. enterprise. Uh, while also a Marine and like a Harvard graduate, like business school graduate. So yeah, what, what are you, a veteran of the Marines and a veteran of Amazon. <laughs> the courage it takes to do to do both. Uh, well, one of them for sure. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, it will be interesting because that interface between game, the game designers and the people making the final decisions yeah. is, is horribly important, uh, as is- Joe and I will talk about at 9 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, the other thing here is, is that this was another sort of stealth I have gone off and vanished, right? Like no one says anything about anything, which is fine. A lot of companies sort of do that. But um, it just continues that, right? Like the marketing person leaves and you just, you know, the only way to know is look at their Twitter bio and when suddenly those wizards' names disappear or there's a job position saying, like, we're looking for a new communication manager. And you're like, I guess the old one left. Oh, they did. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what does turnover mean in the middle of the design of the next edition of the game? Yeah, I mean, he was just in the videos, right, telling you the bold vision for it. So. Yeah, yeah. So we, we will see if the next vision is bold and boldinger, bold, bolder. Yeah, I guess that's I think it. It's the same conjugation as embiggen. Okay, that's right. Emboldened. Mm-hmm. Um, keeping on business news, Hasbro has released their quarter three earnings report. Is it all sunshine and roses, Teos? <laughs> Tell me. I want to know. It is as if there was a big event that impacted everybody that has begun to slow. Really? And that also has torn down all of what made it in Biggin. Tell me more about that. What well, is this big event that you're talking about? Uh, it's a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, it's been in some news, but you may have missed it. Uh, so, yeah, and thanks to listener Scipio, who provided a breakdown uh, while we were flying of these quarterly earnings. Okay. Um, but there's an investor presentation up. It's got really pretty slides. Like, if you like buying stocks based on how attractive the slide deck is, you may wish to purchase some Hasbro stock. Uh, they also have a lot of really cool words about the future. They are still on track to double everything, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to have several $1 billion brands. That's one of the big parts they say at, at the bold level is, you know, Magic is going to be a $1 billion brand, and they want several other $1 billion brands. And the idea, as we said before, is fewer brands and bigger. Yep. That's not the actual words they use, but it's similar. Uh, and uh, and that's that's... That's bold, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. these numbers don't support that because <laughs> kind of everything has gone down, and, and, and there were sort of two levels. The, number, the numbers were interesting, and then also just the presentation. Like, there are these multicolored slides with all these little segments, and when you think of as a D&D fan, like, well, which part of that is us? You're like, oh, that's a little wedge, this little book part. And, uh, and everything else are using words like e-commerce and Hasbro Pulse, which is an online site, and digital games and services, and licensing and entertainment, and mass channel, and, and uh, deep shopper engagement, click stream, digital. It's all digital. You're just making all these words no, up. No, I'm not. Uh, the common yeah. data core is in the center hub. I think that's what you have to destroy to kill it. <laughs> the common data core. You've got to get to the common data core. Yeah, okay. 
So there, there has been a, a downturn, although they, they gave D&D a mixed result. Uh, the quarterly earnings are up compared to last year, but year-to-date earnings are down, which is not surprising. I, I think if it had gone up, I would be surprised, because what happens when you announce a new edition is coming? There is that, though, I mean, I guess that's always that question we never can figure out properly, which is how much of this success is driven by people connected to the news of D&D? versus walking into a gaming shop and just buying whatever's shiny. Yeah. And like I'm always amazed whenever I just spend time in a gaming store and I just see so many people are like, the reality is this shelf. I just walked in and I found a thing I like. I have purchased this. I have no idea what this company is doing. I don't follow anything online. Right. But what the company does puts the books on the shelves or not, and yeah. the game stores will stock the shelf with the things that they think someone may or may not buy and you know, it, it's impossible to predict yeah. what what that will be. Uh, you know, game stores may have the whole shelf of players' handbooks and regret it um, <laughs> soon. <laughs> Never regret your purchase. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, and obviously the strategy that Hasbro should do is to launch a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do that, Hasbro. I'm kidding. Uh, please don't. But uh, the... Besides that, the the strategy had been, hey, look, we're super, super profitable, right? Like the D&D side, the wizard side is making so much money on so little spend, so make more. Mm-hmm. So we saw more book releases, right? Because if you make more and they're highly profitable, everybody wins. Then, then the, So that theoretically would have created explosive growth. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen that explosive growth, though apparently it's up, but they don't really say how much. And let us tell you the story of TSR, <laughs> who did exactly that. Yeah. And how did that go? Well, well yeah. Wizards of the Coast owns D&D now, so yeah. we know how that went. Uh, somebody had, and, yeah. And my, my question would be, I don't know if we can get the answer, is with more book releases per year, how many people are actually buying more books per year? Right. Because I can't get through the content they put out as it is. Yeah. I'm certainly not. I'm kind of happy that I'm not into Spelljammer because... I don't have to worry about that. I'll worry about next week's release. <laughs> right. And, and maybe they get excited about that. So it's like I get a break from new releases that I don't have to buy. Right. So, yeah, I yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was buying everything on D&D Beyond, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I want to use that monster. So I go click on it. I was like, you do not own this book yet. I'm like, what? What book don't – I don't own four books. How did that happen? Uh, yeah. it, it, it comes – life comes at you fast, and apparently so does D&D now. I've a couple times played a game with someone who's you know pretty big in the industry to say, name the last five D&D releases. And they, it's always an incorrect, but also like the, like a surprising, like, oh, yeah, that book. God, I'd forgotten about that because we've gotten to that point, right? Whereas what I think the key to the initial fifth edition was everybody could tell you that. Yep. Like anybody remotely, you know, at, say at the Twitter level of engagement could tell you like, oh, well, you know, it was this book and then that book. Right. And that's what we released over the last five right. months. And there you are. This, let me tell you all about them. Right. right. We now are in out of the abyss now. It is the <laughs> devils yeah. and demons storyline yeah. for the year, and we are all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and then there'd be like a Volos to talk about, right, or right. a Sword Coast Adventures guide. And that, that would be all you would kind of talk about, but everybody understood that. It was very thematic. It was all very good, clear marketing. Now it's like, did we have marketing for Strixhaven? I'm pretty sure we did. Yeah. And you think, Strixhaven, could that have had any appeal to, like, kids in school? I don't know. We didn't have the time to check that out. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. Just on the subject. Right. Online. And it was interesting to go through there and read how someone completely, maybe not completely, but, but certainly not a gamer. You could read it and say, this was not written by a gamer. And here's and what they're doing is they're educating investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is how the rest of the world views it. You know? yep. 
Yeah, and we talk about it on the episode that should be dropping like right now. Okay, so the yeah, one right. one that will come out Thursday. And the the title of the article, if you didn't see it, was Can D&D Be the Next Harry Potter? And they talk about how much money Harry Potter made, how much money Lord okay. of the Rings made, how much money Game of Thrones made. And could, could D&D become... You know this multi-billion-dollar thing, and I see heads shaking. No, and that was my response uh, that it cannot because those three things are very different than what D and D is meant well, to be. I, I say yes because it has to. Well, well, and yeah. going back to what Charles was talking about, uh, how the list of things, uh, the digital focuses of all the other brands. What I read between the lines there was that there's. Right. I think they can, but Harry Potter was, here's the books, here's the movies, and then everything that came from that. Lord of the Rings was, you know, here's the Hobbit, here's Lord of the Rings, um, and everything that came from that. Cool characters, tight story, uh, same thing, Game of Thrones, right? These are the books, HBO series, here we go. D&D started before Game of Thrones and before Harry Potter, um, and it's got a long history, and it's meant for us to tell stories, not for someone to tell stories to us. So turning that into a tight, focused anything is not going to be a single thing. But if they take the breadth approach and we get D&D Salami again, um, maybe we can get there if they put out 10 million products, each making a million dollars, as opposed to one product making $10 billion. I think those efforts are going to be disconnected from the game in a lot of ways. Oh. It's about, we have a brand and a product of these worlds we create, and let's mass market people who just want to consume entertainment. Exactly. If they happen to start playing the game, great. Right. That's not where you make your money off that audience. For sure. D20-shaped salami. Yeah. yeah. I, we're ready. Let's well, do this. I had this. some tofurkey yeah. in my vegan sandwich yesterday, and yeah. it was so good. Yeah. I think a D20 version would probably, if they'd get the right places to make it. Okay. I think we'll, really go far. Speaking of Tofurky, uh, Mike Shea. <laughs> no offense, Mike. Uh, on, uh, had a, was it a tweet thread or was it I his? I think it was a sex piece. It says satisfying campaign, campaign conclusions. Okay. I think it was about. Yeah. About, yeah. Never mind. Um, so Mike pulled DMs, and he found that about half the players in DMs say they rarely or almost never have a satisfying campaign conclusion. Uh, 31% said sometimes, 14% said often, and only 7% said almost always. So that leaves almost 50% who are below the sometimes threshold of a satisfying campaign conclusion. The stated reasons for this were they would switch to something new in the middle of the campaign. Um, there was a change to the group or to the players. The DM would burn out so the campaign would never finish, or the group would fall apart for other various reasons. Um, so Mike made some recommendations, as Mike is yeah. wont to do. Yeah, he said, uh, always start a podcast with a sports segment. <laughs> I did mention football today. <laughs> no, just for Mike. I said basketball just for Mike. Yeah. But, uh, no, he said... Uh, Run with six players so that if several of them can't make it, you can still run with four. So he'll run with four if he can, you know, he's good. He also has an on-call list. So, like, if people say early on they can't make it, you can notify someone that they can fill in. Um, run shorter sessions every week at a recurring time. I think that's good advice. And I think when I moved to three hours for my Tomb of Annihilation, that was actually a better. That was a win over four. I think I played more because of that. Mm -hmm. um, Run short, focused, and flexible campaigns. That's really good advice. Like that's, a, I ran a four-shot Numenera campaign that was. It felt like it was twenty. It was so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, ask a one year later at the end of a campaign to give players the satisfaction of what they accomplished. So we ended. You know, we we destroyed Tiamat. What happens a year from now? Mm -hmm. And that's good. I like I like that technique a lot. Uh, send a reminder email before games. Uh, remind them every week, you know. So, see you on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Lock the players in your basement. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That would, that would yeah. work. I don't know how satisfying that would be, but you Check certainly your local get, codes. Yeah. Well, of course. Uh, my, my big one would be 
before you even start the campaign, say to your players, what would be a satisfying ending to this campaign for you? And that way you have a goal to work toward. Now, the players might change their mind on what a satisfying ending to the campaign would be, but at least you would have a focus to start with. If, if, if they want their characters to be 20th level, well, good luck. You want to keep that you know, level quickly then yeah. uh, if that's satisfying. And, but if they want you know, a satisfying uh, story where each character goes through one major life change and then comes out the other side, um, then you can say, well, I could do that in six sessions, right. so let's do that. Uh, and and if you know the goal you're shooting for, you have a better chance of hitting it, and you can always change that goal as the campaign goes on. You yeah. can always make the campaign longer. You know, we're going to have a 10-shot. Oh, we like it so far? Let's make it a 20-shot right. and, and go from there. Yeah, I thought that was interesting with uh, Session Zero for my last campaign. We, we, we established a number of things like that, but still when we got towards the end, they were like, are we going to keep playing? And I'm like, no. No, this is this is quite good. Like we're, we're going to call this a win, folks. And we're going to end here because I don't want to string this on endlessly. And, and I think you know, looking at the table, like probably half the players are like, "Yeah, let's just keep going. I want to, you know, I want to see my character keep doing things." And the other half are like, mm. "So do and you that's th- an excellent time to stop." Well, do you <laughs> think that was a satisfying ending to the players that want to keep going? I think it still was. Yeah. Okay. I think okay. I think they, you know, some of that is with like, I, and I'd like another season of this show. Mm-hmm. But make it really good, like well, yeah, sure, right? Like of course, but <laughs> right. but also maybe just stop now because it's good now. Because right? yeah, okay. Uh, any any thoughts out there from the DMs? Yes. Yeah, one thing my group does we have rotating DMs, and so we'll run like a hardcover, and then the next person will be like, okay, well, Peter preps the next adventure. I'll do six. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that gives them a couple of months basically nice. to get the next longer arc prep, and in the meantime, we know we've got a distilled, shorter okay. uh, arc to play. Do you play with the same characters, or do you switch characters? Uh, we've done both. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've done both. That's or cool. sometimes we switch systems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. That's nice. Yeah, that... You have a group that you're always working with to just, you know, you take this short thing for a bit while right. someone else perhaps... And that play. real change of focus, especially if you run a different kind of game, mm-hmm. makes makes you appreciate what you did as you change it. And then when you go back to D&D from whatever you played, you can appreciate that more. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think that's the thing that, that can happen when you're a new DM. It can be a little, like I remember in college, one of the guys was like, I want to run something for a bit. And I was like, but I'm the DM, <laughs> right? And, and I had to sort of like, okay, yeah, you know, yes, please do this thing. And he, and he, and he was like, you know, I'm gonna have lots of dragons. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> But, you know, what it was is actually what you were saying. It, it was a great break yeah. and a time for me to think about what, would, what I would run next. Are you saying you have out. a hard time giving up control of something? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to continue news or do you want to jump yeah, in? I can jump. Okay, we are going to jump forward to our main topic today, which is continuing our look at the second playtest packet for 1D&D. If you've listened to the show previously, um, you know that we're working our way through these packets. And we are now up to spell lists and the rules glossary. And boy, do we have opinions. What? Yes. Yeah, uh, so what's in this section, Sean? What, what do they tell us about spell lists? Well, they've divided the spells into three primary categories, arcane, divine, and primal, mm. that go all the way up to level nine. Uh, this was pretty... This is a pretty significant change for a backwards compatible version of D and D. Yeah, that's a slight nudge, a little polish. You yeah, know, just polishing just, the top of five ages. Yeah. So, so what do you think of of these spell lists? They they are very big changes, and the Bard and the Ranger examples in the expert portion of it that we already talked about underscore how fundamental these changes are because. You're literally moving spells around to make the new system work, mm-hmm. which is what you do when you build a 6C, right? right. You, you move things around because you must for this to work. And uh, we have things like this list gives us asterisks next to spells that have changed schools of magic. So like healing spells are now abjuration instead of evocation. And um, ritual spell casting, spells with a ritual tag, now can be cast that way by any caster. So you no longer need ritual spell casting as a feature. Mm-hmm. Spells have moved into what 
classes have them because now you, you know, we had to thematically say that the bard gets arcane, but only of these schools, so now you don't have spells you used to have, right? So those are all big changes. Some people have had fun saying that, you know, like, a well-known critical role character no longer can do that spell that was a clutch save in this one particular episode, right? right. And, yeah. And spells that were, whoa, they no longer get these sonic spells. Well, the sonic spell moved over from evocation to whatever mm-hmm. the bard can do, so now they can cast it, which right, it takes a while to get used to. And we get two particular spells being changed quite significantly, the first being Barkskin, uh, which used to give you an, an armor class bonus. Right. You would, it would set your armor class uh, high. Now it grants you temporary hit points, and oh, I know... Good. You know, there are no temporary hit points in I, the game. I know you're a big fan of temporary hit points, so I'm mm-hmm. sure you were jumping up and down at that. Uh, and Guidance was, was the other one. Uh, it now says that only... It's a reaction as someone is trying to do something, and uh, you, they can only get a benefit from the spell once per long rest. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my question was, okay, so it's, it's a reaction to something that they are attempting at the moment, and it only lasts until the start of their next turn. So what if you're, like, doing a survival thing where we're going to see if you can hunt for food and it's going to take you eight hours to do that? Guidance no longer applies to that, I assume? Yeah, it's... It's, it's in, in that sense, it's another of these sort of like the exploration pillar, pillar feels like it's weaker and weaker as these packets come out, which is sort of strange. Yeah. You know, like why, why are you de-pillaring the game? Right, because if there was one thing that we would want in a new edition, it's tell us how to do this, how to gamify this, and have fun with these exploration Over rules. more situations. Right. And guidance is problematic, right? It, it, oh, does, yeah. it is a giant pain in the butt when you're running tables, uh, especially for strangers, and, and a person makes a roll, but, oh, I would have cast guidance. No, okay. And then you have to hear it for the rest of the day. Right. Like every time someone rolls a check, there's, you know, we've got to have a guidance applied, and it's like a bless that's just constantly on. Right. And you're like, I don't think this is the point of a cantrip to be this level of impact. Uh, and it, mathematically, you can break it down in design-wise. It's a really big impact on, on what your chances are. Mm-hmm. So it probably should change in some way. I don't know that I love this change. Um, and that whole tracking once per long press just seems a little strange, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a play test, right? And yeah. as we've said over and over and over again, they're throwing things, seeing <laughs> if it sticks, getting people's feedback, and, and it's fine. It's fine to, to try things out, and it's also fine for us to say, I don't know. Yeah, no. I don't know about that. But I'm glad they're looking at it. I do mm-hmm. think guidance needs a look. For sure. Uh, and things like that. But I do. I would like to see things that support open play. And then this narrowing down of, of what, to me, is the fascinating part of the Dungeons & Dragons experience. I want to see that open and supported rather than funneled down into, you know, are you talking about sort of the storytelling aspect? Yeah, like like the dwarf stone cunning. Right now, it's tremor sense. It, like you know that it's it's a loss of something that tied into in an open way into the pillar. Like, hey, you are a dwarf. You have this sort of knowledge. You come up with ways to apply this, and I, the DM, will adjudicate. Right. Right. Or you want to talk to a monster? We'll talk to the monster. No, I'm going to make a blah check with my blah action, and I'm going to. Right. You know, let's follow the rules. Step four, you... Uh, I must have missed the blah action in the rules <laughs> glossary. Let's let's yeah. check the rules glossary well, well, to yeah, see what the blah is. So, actually, before we get to the rules oh, glossary, just one yeah. quick thing. that Jared Rasher, being the nerd that he is, thanks, mm-hmm. Jared, uh, put together this enormous list of looking through the additions at what spells had changed from what schools to what. And it's really fascinating to see how often spells move around schools. So it's worth checking out that link in the show notes. I, I really enjoy that. All right, so the glossary tells us that it, it's been updated and we should use the latest glossary in each packet uh, but can otherwise combine it, uh, combine packets when playtesting. Um, so if something changes in the new packet, use the new packet. If it's not, right. keep, go back to the, either the, new, the, orig- the previous packet or the original rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ability check. Uh, the wording now strongly encourages that an action is required for ability checks, uh, although the DM can override it as a bonus action or no action. And that's where the little hackles on the back of my neck uh, stood up, because 
I have been, it's been drilled into me that do not do things as bonus actions. Bonus actions are their own special unicorn, right. and we only want bonus actions to, to happen when the, it's a class ability that does a specific thing. And I loved that restriction um, because it, it tried to control what bonus actions did. Um, and when, when I would write adventures like you're trying to stop the ritual while fighting the monsters, I always resisted that urge to say, well, you can you know, use, a, use a spell or use something to take off that rune as a bonus action because bonus actions hold a special place in the game. So to see them just say, yeah, just make it a bonus action, uh, I, I have to get over it. Uh, well, I have and, to breathe deeply. But it shows that fundamental shift that, that 5e is... The, the way that 5e was conceptualized, that is no longer true now. Right. Right? Like, like there is a new lens through which people are looking at this edition, right? The designers, the makers of the game, the Jeremy Crawfords, they're somehow changing those opinions of what is sacrosanct here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what else did you note in the rules glossary that you wanted to mention? Um, we're back to the... We've reverted the critical hit rules back to the original 2014 version. I think that's good. Um, they're still playing with inspiration as being based off of when you roll a die and you get a certain result. So they changed it a bit. Now it's a one grants inspiration. I, to me, inspiration, I just to play too many role-playing games where I want it to be a system that encourages great behavior between players. Right. And this is die-based. So I, I, don't, I don't love that. Uh, yeah. It doesn't feel like story mechanic. And, yeah. And I, Eh. It, it was a half-baked rule in 5e that needed another year in the oven. Mm -hmm. And then since it didn't get baked fully, they're trying to – I have a food analogy going here. And, boy, this is going to go up in a flambe. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Exhaustion. Uh, exhaustion has been renamed the exhausted condition. So now you can gain up to 11 – well, 10 – levels of exhaustion and if you go one higher oh you do you actually you die at level that 10 of exhaustion and what exhaustion does is if you have a level of exhaustion it subtracts the number of levels you have from any uh d20 test so if you're at nine levels of exhaustion your saves and your attack rolls <laughs> and your yeah. ability checks are getting a minus nine that's a thing. I mean, I think it's a better system than what we have by a long shot, right? Which is, in some ways, all you need to do is just improve it. And this does feel a little more like polish, right? This does not make the game necessarily incompatible. It is a different set of rules. Right. Um, I like it better. There are some questions here about how exactly how this interacts with other elements. And, and there are some things about the, sort of the curve of it, right? If you're high level versus low level, how big an impact that is. That's, that's my main question is like poison damage is bad at low levels and everyone has a hero's feast or something at, at high levels and poison becomes almost irrelevant. If there are ways to get rid of exhaustion easily at high levels but not at low levels, you're just making that low level uh, play experience more deadly and it doesn't need to be more deadly. The higher level needs to be more deadly and the lower level needs to be more, you know, more survivable and more fun. So I'm, I'm worried about that. Uh, in that in that case. And how many times will you get exhaustion is another question. If they have half the monsters in the, the new monster manual will give exhaustion, right. that's a... Or uh, lots of spells, or, or if yep. the idea is that a trek through the wilderness should possibly give you five levels, right? That's... Yep. Um, the help action now requires being proficient in the skill that you're helping with. I don't know that we super needed that. Um, these are the kind of things that I just sort of feel like if your job is polishing the game... You know, is this a thing people were crying out for? I don't know. I, I think we're beyond polishing at yeah, this yeah, point. Yeah, it's uh, clear. So I wanted to talk about grapple. Yeah. So uh, the grappled condition says at the end of your turn, you can, for free, make an, try to make an, an, escape, an escape check. Turn. But it does not give you the ability to use an action to try to escape. And if you can't use an action to try to escape, it means... You can never get away from a monster on your turn. Uh, mm. So even if you escape at the end, that's the end of your turn, and you're still standing next to this creature that probably will grapple you again the next round. Um, so for me, that's that the little klaxons are going off. Like, this could be a problem uh, with the game if you don't allow that action. Yeah. To And yeah, maybe somewhere else I, I'm missing that. Or if you're somehow, like, grabbed and inside a 
belly or something and right. still technically grappled. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, there, there's some things there about grapple that I think overall, I actually like the way it works now. I just think it's it's a good, it's a nice sweet spot. You can complain about it, but it, it all works. Yeah. Uh, and I'm worried that anything they do will, more than anything else, uh, cause trouble when you have bosses. Yeah. Right? And the players the bosses, are going to use this yeah. endlessly on them. Um, the hide action has been reworked in some ways. The most interesting thing is it requires a DC 15 check. Yeah, that's bizarre to me. Um, be, and because if you if you if if you're hidden when you roll initiative, you get uh, advantage on your initiative roll. To hide, you need to make a DC 15 check regardless of what is looking at you. Yeah. Well, what happens if three things are looking at you? One of them sees you, but the other two don't. Do you still get advantage on? You're hidden from some things, but not from other things. <laughs> and what, what if the thing has blind sense, but you make that DC 15 check? Are you hidden? Technically, according to the rules, you are, even though the thing can see you, and knows you're there. So it, it, it's a little. Those two rules yeah. together were a little wonky. Yeah, there are a number of other things. Uh, you know, jump is now an action. We talked about that a bit. Um, we have some adjustments to, uh, well, moving. I st- this is one I would love to see change, where when you move through an ally, it's difficult terrain. It just really doesn't work with five-foot corridors is my biggest problem, and yeah. you have those in D&D. So I would love to see that change because there's nothing worse than watching a whole bunch of, uh, we all moved five feet because of our initiative order, right? Like, that's yeah. terrible. And the, the last one I want to talk about is unarmed strike because this one blew me away, figuratively and literally. Um, if you make an unarmed strike, you can deal damage. Or you can knock the creature prone or move it five feet with an unarmed strike. Now, there's no saving throw. There's no opposed check. So it, th- there's a limit of one size larger than you. But, you know, a peasant can walk up to an ogre, and if it hits with its unarmed, the peasant hits with the unarmed strike, it can knock the ogre prone. No opposed check, no anything like that. Um, prone is pretty powerful, um, especially if you have a solo yeah. monster and you knock it prone and everyone beats the tar out of it that that's that's a significant strategic advantage um that gives no recourse for for the creature being struck so something to think about yeah good point and we are going to shut down here i want to thank everybody out there for listening to us babble uh thank you at home for listening and we are going to close now because we have a seminar coming in behind us and we want to give them lots of time so thanks again and we'll talk to you next week thank you thanks everybody Yeah, thank you so much. I was going to say if you're having fun so far, but literally we just started, so...